digital sleeper. <laughs> All right, we're going to continue and finish up chapter 13 of Revelation this morning. And we will just take a moment and do some real quick review of the first part, not in depth. Let me pray first, though. <clears throat> Father, thank you that this is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. And we are grateful for life, we're grateful for all that you've given us and done for us, Father, in your Son. We are so grateful, Lord, beyond words, for the privilege of knowing you and living for you and witnessing on the earth of your greatness. We know the fragility of our lives. We know the vulnerability of our lives. We know, Lord, the tendency of our own hearts to stray. So today we ask for grace that would not just strengthen us for today, but, Lord, that you would enable us to live into the future for you in a way that is worthy of the calling that we've been given. We pray that you would speak to us today, Holy Spirit, something that would um, penetrate our hearts to know that you are with us, teaching us, leading us, guiding us, protecting us, keeping us, so that we might do all that you've called us to do and be all that you've called us to be. So we give this time to you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, Father, amen. So, Revelation 13, two beasts, two beasts, one that comes from the sea and one that arises from the earth. We talked about this last week, that this is no accident, that chapter 11, there are two witnesses, and the two witnesses in Revelation 11, which we've already looked at and talked about, and we have concluded that the two witnesses represent the church throughout the age, witnessing and testifying to the truth of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. And so now we see two beasts that are, um, in a sense, now the, the dragon's answer to the two witnesses. And, and so we will see this unholy trinity now that we will have found beginning in chapter 12 and into 13 of a dragon and then two beasts that represent an unholy counterfeit trinity. And these two beasts we, we know from chapter 11, um, after the two witnesses had finished their testimony, it says the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them. And kill them. So this is now the the enemy's method and tool and device and strategy to destroy the witness of the church on the earth through these two beasts, at least to confront it, to uh, enter into warfare with it. In terms of the church, I'm speaking now. These two beasts um, wanting to conquer and ultimately even God giving the beasts and the dragon for a very brief period of time at the very end of the age, 
power over the church to the degree that there will be much martyrdom and, and uh, right before the return of the Lord. So beginning in chapter 13 and verses 1 through 10, we've looked at this first beast that came from the sea. And we talked about this last week, that this beast is really a representation of all that Daniel saw in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. It's, it's almost as though that the beast of Revelation 13 embodies all of the four beasts which Daniel saw individually in Daniel chapter 7. And, and we aren't going to get into again what each one of these represent, but there are four representing different, in Daniel 7, different kingdoms with horns. We talked about this last week. But just to say that this sea beast, this first beast, symbolizes the persecuting power of Satan embodied in all of nations and all governments throughout history. And it is the persecuting power of Satan becoming visible, tangible, through governments throughout history. And this is what, again, Daniel saw. And he saw, Nebuchadnezzar saw four kingdoms. Daniel saw four beasts and consecutive kingdoms in, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, ultimately ending with what was Rome, would be destroyed by another kingdom that would be carved from a mountain without human hands, the kingdom of God destroying the last kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And then we see Daniel having this vision in Daniel 7. So I, I said last week, too, and I think this is really significant, and I wanted just to put this into our hearts and minds again today, that there's so much speculation about what the beast is. And if you've heard or read any of the contemporary, you know, uh, yeah, explanations and interpretations of Revelation, and especially those that are most prevalent are the dispensational, premillennial, which is very, very literal. And so people are trying to figure out what or who this beast is exactly. It's not hard. All you have to do is look at Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture is always the first rule of hermeneutics. It's always the best way to try to understand something is to let the Word of God interpret it for you. And almost always, the New Testament, you can go back into the Old and find the meaning of things. And so it's not hard to see what these beasts are, what this beast represents, when you look at Daniel, it represented kingdoms of the earth, governments, if you would. So this represents, as I said in a, uh, just a, a moment ago, it's, it's almost as though it is the embodiment of all that Daniel saw in one beast. So what it suggests to me is that the, sea, the beast that came from the sea in John's vision was greater and is, listen, is greater than any individual empire even that of Rome. Whatever it is that, that John is seeing in his revelation, in his vision, which is described as embodying the four that Daniel saw in his, which were terrifying to Daniel, 
This, because it embodies them, it is greater than any individual empire. It represents, in a sense, the strategy of the enemy throughout human history using governments to persecute and to try to destroy the witness of the church and to bring about his desired end, which is the destruction of mankind and the destruction of the church. And it says that God gave to the dragon his power and throne, excuse me, I'm sorry, I, I misinterpreted it, to it, to the beast, the dragon gave his power his throne, and great authority to the beast that came from the sea. The dragon gave his power and his throne and his authority. So it has this sense of um, great authority over all the nations, and it in fact represents the nations of the earth. And we talked about this last week, too, very quickly. Is this the Antichrist? Because that's how it's interpreted mostly by premillennial dispensational theology. And I said the answer to that question is yes and no. It is yes in that John tells us that many Antichrists have gone out into the world, 1 John 2.18. But we also know that the spirit of Antichrist, which has begun since the church age began, will be manifest in one individual at the end of the age. And Paul speaks of that individual in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he calls him the man of lawlessness. So there is a spirit of Antichrist that has gone out into the world that has been active since the beginning of the church and, and since the time of, 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 the, of the crucifixion and then the church being birthed. The spirit of Antichrist has been in the world resisting to delude, to counterfeit the truth of Jesus Christ, but there will be a manifestation of that spirit in a human being finally at the end of the age for a very, again, a very brief period of time. So this beast represents all of those antichrists, including the final man of lawlessness, who throughout the church age have exercised this blasphemous power in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also saw that this beast is a counterfeit Christ, um, it speaks of it being wounded mortally and then being healed. Again, controversy. And I remember reading uh, many years ago when I was first a, a new believer, reading all of the Hal Lindsey material on the late great planet Earth and his interpretation from a dispensational, that this represents that he believed that the Antichrist, the human being, which the beast represents, will be somehow mortally wounded and will be resurrected. The human being at the end of the age. But again, there's, uh, there, there's a lot of problems, obviously, with that in, in the, the initial interpretation of what the beast represents. Um, but what we believe, what I believe, and what we talked about last week is that simply this represents the beast being wounded by the sword. The sword throughout Revelation was always uh, wielded only by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Word of God it is the power of Christ. It was the enemy's defeat at the cross. It represents the beast, represented the dragon and his authority and his power being, being broken at the cross. The strong man has been bound, but yet it appears that he lives. And we've talked about, we talked about this. Peter spoke of 
that he is like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour, though he is a defeated foe. So we have these two things happening simultaneously in the world in which we're living. On the one hand, we know that Satan is defeated. He has been conquered. We are more than conquerors through Christ ourselves over all and anything that could ever come against us in one sense. But in another sense, we are yet vulnerable to the enemy's lies, deceit, and even his attacks as God allows them against the church for his purposes, for God's purposes. So there is this simultaneous dichotomy going on in terms of the enemy being mortally wounded and yet appearing to live. I read a quote by G.K. Beale. It was this, Satan's wound appeared to be fatal, and indeed it really was. Nevertheless, the devil's continued activity through his agents make it appear to John as though he has overcome this mortal blow, dealt him at Christ's death and resurrection. And so this beast demands false worship, and he is given it by, these, uh, by all the men on the earth. He's demanding it and he's given to it. And it says that he was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So uh, we see this picture of, of the authority of this first beast. And I want to just conclude real quickly this, this, this review by saying these three things. And again, everything that we're reading in the book of Revelation, we have to say to ourselves, okay, if the amillennial perspective is that we're living in the church age and all of this is currently true, and we're not looking forward to future events that may take place during a seven-year period of tribulation, if this is already ongoing, what does that mean for us? And there are three things that this first portion of Revelation ended with. The first was our source of hope is God's sovereignty because it gives us security. I was thinking as I was driving to this morning down here, and I was just thinking and praying, um, I can honestly tell you, before the Lord, my heart, He knows my heart, I'm not afraid of anything. I don't have any fear. I'm not saying that I wouldn't be fearful of it in an event. But when I think about, you know, corona, earthquakes, nukes, I, I'm not afraid. It, it's like I don't have a fear in my heart of any of those things because I feel absolutely secure in God's sovereignty. And that's not to come easily. It hasn't happened instantly. It was over a period of time through growing and understanding. But that was what John says. He says, he says the beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. He couldn't do anything that God didn't allow. So our source of hope is that God is the one who's in control not only of all of world events, but Jesus said in his gospel, in the gospel of Matthew, over the details of your and my life. He knows the hair on our head. He knows everything we're thinking before we even say it. He knows our need before we can even speak them. So not only is he in control of the world's affairs, because he is obviously eternally and he is sovereignly omniscient, He's also in control over the details of yours 
in my life. That gives me great hope and great encouragement. But secondly, we also see in this chapter, at the end of this first portion, the second truth that we can stick and put in our hearts, hearts is that we have been called to live in suffering. That's part of the Christian call. Our calling in persecution is a hope in the midst of suffering. We have a very humble calling on the earth. It's not a grandiose calling. We are more than conquerors through Christ, but we are vulnerable and we live in vulnerability because God wants us to live in vulnerability in a humility that is dependent on Him and that it is consistent with the character of His heart. So the church is not arrogant or proud or boastful or, or um, strutting, you know, somehow in its conquering abilities. But we live in, in confidence of God's faithfulness, but in humility, completely dependent on God. So again, the Christian life is a paradox of, of, of being absolutely secure and confident and being absolutely vulnerable and dependent, both simultaneously. Are you, are you aware of that? You are in your life. I know you are. So that's a, a second truth. This is God's calling for our testimony. This is a huge part of our testimony. Paul said, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my words were not in persuasive words of wisdom. My message was not this great, powerful message of conquering victory. He said, but I came to you in the humility with the foolishness of the message of the cross. He said, and that is the power of God. So there's this amazing thing we have to keep in our hearts in Revelation. That's part of the purpose of Revelation is to teach us that and to keep us in this dependency. And But thirdly is that we also have learned in this text that our victory is through perseverance. That perseverance is the means of victory in this life. So you're not going to be looking always for... You know, a moment in time when suddenly now you're victorious. Of course, we'll experience small senses of victory throughout life. But ultimately, the victory of the Christian life is in the perseverance of faith. Paul said, John says, the Revelation, he writes there, it is, here is a call for endurance and the faith of the saints at the end of chapter 10. After he speaks of anyone who is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes, if anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. And he says, then here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. And Jesus said, sorry, John said in 1 John, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So God's sovereignty is my security. I've been called to live a life that is reflective of suffering, but I am victorious ultimately through persevering. All right, let's look now at the second beast, beginning in verse 11, and let me read verses 11 through 18. This unholy trinity, the first rising from the sea, the second now from the earth, verse 11. And I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns. 
like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Interesting. Two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. There it is again. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed, notice the word, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. To make an image for the beast, notice the words, that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Notice the words. So that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So a number of words in here that are key, breath, image, All of these things are speaking to us of symbol, symbolic language or symbolic language speaking to us of what is taking place behind the scenes on the earth right now through the work of the first beast and now its cohort, the second beast that arises from the earth. And last week I asked you guys, what do you think these beasts represent? And you guys gave me great answers. You guys hit it right on the head with both of your answers, with all of your answers. And I think Andy said that she felt that the second beast actually represents, in a sense, the propaganda that is spewed out of the mouth of, of whomever and whatever to give power and, and, and breath to the first beast. And that is exactly right. And we'll look at that right now. So we see from this chapter that Satan is not alone in his warfare against the church. First, he calls a beast from the sea that gave him power to rule, gives the dragon, which represents Satan, power to rule on the earth. We know we just said that it represents tyrannical governments working in history against Christ and the church. Now, this is, again, amazing. Think about it. The agenda of the enemy is, is singular. We think he's got all these things going on, you know, and he's got all these plans and he's doing all these things. Well, there's a lot going on. There's no question the spirit of the age is at work. But he has one agenda. It's to, to destroy the church. It's to counterfeit Christ and to destroy the witness of the church on the earth. That's it. That is his agenda. And he's using governments. He's using false religion. We'll talk about all that in a moment and many other means to give breath to this 
to the government, tyrannical governments of the earth that are the beast that wants to destroy Christ and will ultimately, eventually, for a period of time, actually conquer the church. In a sense, appearing to conquer the church. We know that he will not. But this beast is not alone. He is joined now by a second beast who rises out of the earth. So the first great power, the first beast, is a secular political power. And he's joined now by what is a religious institution fostering worship for the first beast. But when I use the word religious, I'm not speaking just of religion. There is much that is religious that is just not religion, right? There is idolatry that is religious. There, are, there, is, there is a pagan idolatry, a secular, atheistic, pagan idolatry that is religious at heart because it commands and demands worship, and people worship it. So when you talk about the institutions of religion, religious institutions, we're not just talking about what we think of as false religion, Mormonism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism at all. We're talking about everything that is demanding and commanding worship of this first beast. Yes. Yeah, you want to say anything? Sure. So, I was, when I was reading this week, so the beast came up out of the earth. Yeah. Who else came up out of the earth? Adam. So this is like, to me, man's, again, the whole thing, you can be like God. This whole lifting up man to this deity form through all his ideologies, through all the humanism, through all of that. And that's what it looks like to me in this. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent insight because the first beast came out of the sea. What does the sea represent? Chaos. And so the first beast rose out of the sea, out of the chaos of man's Devices. I mean, where did it start? When you saw the Tower of Babel, right? Where we want to be like God and a and, and human earthly city being built by a man and chaos that ensued. And then exactly what Kev just said is a really good point, is that the second beast coming from the earth, just as Adam was from the dust of the earth, it represents, and we're going to see that with the 666, aren't we? That's exactly what it's that's exactly what John will go on to say. That's right on. So whereas the first beast relies mainly on power, the second beast supports him with lies. Exactly. So this is the relationship like that between like that, not just only, but like that between the state and a state church. Let me read this to you. This is excellent from a commentary I have on Revelation. I guess I should have had it marked. He writes, when we speak of false religion, we should refer to this in the broadest sense of all ideologies that supports unbelief and idolatry. Steve Wilmshurst sees this beast represented in, quote, 
the communism of the Soviet Union with its spectacular parades through Red Square and its party card for the privileged. He sees it in Nazism with its Nuremberg rallies and its Hitler youth. He sees it in the statues of Saddam which infested Iraq, the wall posters of Chairman Mao. But we should add to this the biased media in America that covers up the horrors of abortion, carelessly promotes sexual immorality, and misses no opportunity to heap, heap scorn on Bible-believing Christianity. So again, when we're talking about religion and the, the lies that the second beast is using to support the first beast, we're, we're, we're thinking of it in the broadest terms of ideologies. And we go on in verse 11, and we see that it had two horns, like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Interesting. And again, we see this counterfeit, a satanically inspired counterfeit. It appears as a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. It appears to be harmless. It, 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 it appears to be uh, someone, something that would be um, uh, uh, kind almost or welcoming. So we see that the enemy counterfeits and combats the gospel with subtle philosophies, false religions, ideologies that promote the cause of the beast and the dragon. Paul wrote in Colossians 2.8, we did a whole series on this a couple of years ago. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. This is why he's writing it. An empty deceit. According to human tradition, as Kevin just pointed out, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Paul is speaking of the second beast in Colossians 2.8. That's exactly what he's warning the church to be aware of and to be careful of. And it had two horns like a lamb. Again, the subtlety of the deceit, but its speech was that of the dragon. Of course, this reminds us not to be taken in by initially outward expressions of public figures that are charismatic, that are, that are appealing, that draw us in through their words, their persuasion, the smoothness of their words, of their, of their persona, but to weigh everything against the truth of God's Word, to listen carefully to be discerning with what we're hearing, not to allow our hearts to be drawn to personality and to men or to ideologies that are tickling our ears. So the beast represents pastors, college professors, politicians, actors, musicians, media personalities who cultivate a seductive image in order to gain a hearing for the satanic agenda of the beast and the dragon. That's a pretty heavy statement.
Yes. Yes. Yes, Kevin is, is asking, sh should we not then be aware that we're not sucked into these things? And we have to ask ourselves, where is Christ? How is Christ being preached? How is Christ being, being made known through any of this? And the reality of it is, in most of it, it he won't be. Yeah, okay. In, in, so in, a Christian, in the Christian movements, in, in the false ideology, false... Uh, interpretations of Scripture, and it would even within Western Christendom, we have to ask ourselves exactly that question. That's right. Is the emphasis on Christ or me? Right on. That's exactly right. Because most of it is is it comes back to to us, to man. I mean, if you look at all this, the faith movement and the prosperity gospel, and you know all of these things, all they are is about bettering our own human life. And scriptures are taken out of context and quoted wrongly. And again, it is a contradiction to this chapter to say that Christians are to be anything but humble, vulnerable, and persevering in faith and humility. And it's about Christ. It's a Christ-centered message, exactly. Yes, Andy. It. That, um, I mean, all that we've been talking about makes it, in some sense, a little bit easier to witness to people who think otherwise, and people who are in the world who, who don't believe in Christ, because our message, the gospel that we bring, it is so different, but it makes us that much more vulnerable in bringing it. I mean, we have to be humble. We have to make ourselves vulnerable because we are going against the tide. And, and to say to someone that um, where you're heading, the, the road that you're taking, the things that you believe in will bring ultimate destruction. And I'm not telling you this because I think I'm better than you. I'm telling you this because... Your, your life is in danger, your eternity is in danger, and I'm, I'm risking my life to basically tell you about this. Well, that's very good. That's a very good point. And that's going to become in, in, more and more acute. I mean, if we feel that now, and I think what you're saying is absolutely true, when there's a true understanding of the gospel, see, that it becomes more real to us. But that's going to become even more and more acute because the the vitriol of the enemy is going to become more acute. And it will make our testimony that much more powerful. But it's going to cost us more, too. So all these things are going to be happening increasingly simultaneously. Um, but that's a, that's a very good insight. So this beast exercises all of the authority of the first beast, verse 12 tells us in its presence. So we, we see that it is a propaganda machine, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. And again, when we think of governments, we're not just thinking of, you know, national states so much. We're thinking of, of, of an earthly government that is, a, there's a, a worldwide agenda that, that is, a, a, throughout all of the governments of the earth that 
going back to what Kevin said, is simply to elevate man as being God. And it has been that way since the Tower of Babel all the way through human history. And in times, it's been more evident than others. So we're not just talking about nations, although it obviously includes nations. We're talking about the, 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 the motive behind what is taking place on the earth. Yes. <laughs> Do I believe in what would be called a movie script of the Illuminati? Right, that they've, they've bought into this and they, I think that there is, I think, I don't know what the term, if Illuminati is the word, that, you know, I mean, that's kind of the term that's out there. And, and it's this conspiracy theory, it's viewed by, you know, many as that, as tinfoil hat kind of a deal. But I think this teaches us that that, in fact, is what's happening. So I do believe that there is something that is an agenda that is very overt and covert, and I think there are some people who are behind it and who, are, who know of it and who are pushing it, but most of the people of the earth have no idea of it. And obviously, we know money's involved. We know uh, war is involved. We know uh, there's a lot of parts that are moving parts in all of this that we're working together to bring about the enemy's agenda. Yeah, Michael. I would say a lot of that's been prop propagated through the educational system and that they have created this whole humanism, secular humanism, and that man is the chief thing. And that is how they have usurped, if you will, a lot of things. Because on the surface, it doesn't seem all that bad. But when you dig into it, it's all about man. That is 100% right on. If, and again, I'll refer to a book that I've talked about many times by Francis Schaeffer, The Church at the End of the 20th Century. And he wrote it in 1975, prophetically telling us what's going to be happening, and it's happening right now. And at that time, he was talking about the college professors who would, who would be influencing the young people of the, of the church and of the, of, the, of the earth, who are right now in the 60s were the rebels, were the radicals, that were doing things uh, during that time, dropping acid, the whole movement of the, of the psychedelic, uh, the, the drug culture started in, that's all been part of the agenda. Schaefer outlines it incredibly in this book. And then, of course, the ideology, political ideologies that are now at work in colleges around the world um, that are propagating secular humanistic thinking. Antichrist, exactly. And, and, and they're adamant against it. I mean, it's, it's hard now to be a believer in a secular, in a university, public university, and speak your mind without, you know, definitely being attacked in, verbally, and in some cases put out of the class, I think. You guys have all read all that stuff that's been going on. Got to keep moving here. So this second beast is able to work powerful signs and wonders. It has deceptive power. In John's day, uh, the history tells us that pagan music, ma ma musicians, pagan magicians, 
you two and uh, those guys, were able to do great works of wonder, pagan magicians. They could even make idols appear to speak. Statues would appear to move. Uh, G.K. Beale, again, in his commentary, says that various pseudo-magical tricks, including ventriloquism, false lightning, and other phenomena, were effectively used in the temples of John's time. But again, we're not taking everything literally. This is symbolic, most of it. It's speaking of the fact that there is deceptive power that is being used by the second beast to uh, coerce and to convince people of the, uh, of, the, of the agenda of the first beast. It deceives those who dwell on the earth. And throughout the book of Revelation, verse 14 says, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. Throughout Revelation, those who dwell on the earth are people who live in sin and unbelief. That's what that term refers to. Those who dwell on the earth refers to those who live in sin and unbelief. So the second beast's agenda is to deceive the people of the earth into making an image. Listen for the first beast. And I have this question. In our day, what would be the powerful means by which people are being seduced to worship the first beast. Technology, big one. Media, internet. Music festivals, very much so. Probably the most powerful means is the advancements of science and technology. Because they're promoting this, this, false, this false image of, of, the, of the supremacy of man. So through the media and in universities, in movies, in television, in music, there is an incessant message that calls us to progress beyond the narrow thinking of the Bible with its God and its salvation and its lifestyle. There is an incessant message, a drumbeat, and it is subtle, and it is powerful, and it is seducing, and it will seduce you and I, and it will seduce your children, if it can. An incessant message that calls us to progress beyond the narrow thinking of the Bible with its God, its salvation, and its lifestyle. So this man, Paul Gardner, says in his book, man replaces God and Christ with himself. And in doing so, succumbs to the full deception of the beast. Man replaces God and Christ with himself. And in doing so, succumbs to the full deception of the beast. It is the ultimate eating of the fruit of the tree. That's right. But I think the key to this is the subtlety of it. That it is alluring. I'm, I, my heart is drawn to things so easily. I ask myself sometimes, why do I enjoy watching certain types of shows? And I'll have to tell you that, you know, that sometimes I get grieved that I go, I, 
I don't know that, that I would have done this right after I got saved. It's almost like you just get used to it. Are you with, you know what I'm talking about? And the, the reality of it is, it's almost like, and it's not an excuse. I would never use it as an excuse. It's hard to get away from it. If you want to have any kind of entertainment, and we all want it, and we all need entertainment. We all want to just, you know, download, just sit down and take it easy and enjoy something. And I mean, it's like, it's hard to get away from, you know, Kath and I last night, you know, we were, Kath's mom passed away yesterday, last evening. Yeah. Um, so we were at the house, Matt and Shannon and Kath and I were with her and it was, it was beautiful. But while we were waiting for them to come after she had passed, we sat down and I just turned on a Netflix and we watched this PG movie. And to be honest with you, I haven't watched a PG movie in a long time. Because it's like there's nothing that would ever probably interest me in PG. You know what I mean? And your first thought is, this is probably a Christian movie. But it wasn't. It was just a nice, innocent movie. It was, and it was, it was good. And it's like I just was thinking, it's hard to find anything that you would, that, uh, for me, that I'm even interested in anymore. And that's, that's something, there's something wrong in that. And I was convicted by that. I was just thinking, it's seducing. It is very seducing. And that's the warning. Verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So in chapter 2 of Revelation, the church of Pergamum was suffering great persecution. Antipas had already been martyred for his faith. We talked about that in chapter 2. This was probably done by local government officials who wanted to be seen to be zealously loyal to Caesar. And this is what's beginning to happen around the world today. Not just religious fanatics like Muslims, but nations now even persecuting and killing Christians to show their zeal for their government, for their gods, whoever it might be, the idolatrous state and its leaders. And it also causes, in verse 16, all that are both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So the question is, what is the mark? And this is the huge question, again, that's out there today. And most Christians in most churches that are right now in around Sacramento would say, the mark is literally on their hand. It's a chip that's going to be implanted in their hand. And you already hear stories that that's already happening, that they're putting chips in people for various reasons. And immediately people go to this text. Yeah, this is it. This is it. The Greek word for the mark is a, is a word which is a term used for the emperor's seal on official documents. It represents the state's political and economic stamp of approval given only to those who succumb to its demands. In the Roman world, sometimes slaves were marked on their foreheads to mark their ownership. This marks those who belong to the beast as its property. Soldiers receive marks on their hands to show their allegiance to certain generals. This is the mark of a devotion of a believer, of a follower. So there's a mark on the forehead like a slave. There's a mark on the hand like a, de in a devotion to, to someone so we see that this mark is, is, is given to those who, are on the, those who dwell on the earth. In Revelation 7, which we've already looked at, 
the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea are told, don't harm the earth or the sea until we have what? Sealed the servants of the Lord on their foreheads. So Revelation 7, the saints are sealed. Revelation 13, those who dwell on the earth are marked. Now in Revelation 7, the sealing of the saints happened before the foundation of the earth. Those of you, we, who are the called of God, were called from all eternity, we have already been sealed and identified as being of the Lord's. It's those whose names are written in the book of life. We belong to another. Our devotion is to the true and living God. We will not be deceived or coerced into following or into giving an allegiance to the beast. Even if it means that we will suffer, just as Daniel, just as his friends, we will not give allegiance to the beast. We will not bow down. And I'm going to say this to us prophetically, that the choice not to bow down will become more and more conscious. I know that we all unconsciously refuse to bow again and again and again throughout the day. But we're going to be confronted more and more with opportunities and demands to consciously bow. To make choices to deny what we believe. Subtly, initially, and then probably not so subtly, eventually. So the beast does not demand a tattoo on the forehead or hand, listen, but a mind and a will that is completely given to its demand and values. That's what this forehead and hand represent, the mind and the will. The mind and the will, completely given to its demands and its values. And I thought it was interesting that in Revelation 7, the saints are to be sealed not just marked by God. Let me read one more thing to you. We're running out of time. I'm going to try to do this quickly. Um, I want to read this. I thought this was so excellent. This book is so heavy, the stand won't stay up. These examples show that the mark of the beast is not something that not one accidentally receives. Primarily, it is a formal acceptance of total allegiance to a person or earthly entity, rendering a devotion that only God deserves to receive. This allegiance will usually be marked with some formal recognition, such as the Nazi armband, or earn special privileges, such as those given to communist parties in China. While receiving the beast's mark is never accidental, the process may be subtle. The arist aristocratic officers of the German army did not vow unconditional loyalty to Adolf Hitler because they admired him. Mainly, they were motivated by patriotism and career ambitions. Later, they felt trapped by their oath into committing atrocities that they themselves knew would bring ruin to their country. In America today, businessmen may sell their souls to their companies out of their lust for success. 
Some people fail to profess faith in Christ because of loyalty to family expectations. Some youths wear tattoos of street gangs or a rock group that they religiously follow, swearing heart and soul to the gang or the band or the subculture. Ultimately, the mark of the beast involves a choice between the world and Christ. And where it is on them is representative of both will and mind. Verse 16, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who understands calculate the number for the, it is the number of a man. The number is 666. What does that represent? People have tried to do this gematria where they go through and they try to count it and they figure out the name is how many numbers in the name and is it Nero? Was it Caesar? You know, is it, is it Kissinger? You know, is it, you know, Pope John the 35th or, you know, and, and I, thought, I think Goofy even added up to 666 when you did his name. So that's the problem with it. You can come up with a lot of names that end up with this geometry with 666. There is no limit to Antichrist candidates, according to most of these people. So what does it really represent? 777 represents what? The number of perfection, completeness. completeness. Six falls short by one. It is the number of imperfection. It is the number of man. It describes fallen mankind. That's why Paul said, John says it is the number of a man. So the dragon and the two beasts set themselves up as a counterfeit threefold trinity, but they are a threefold failure. G.K. Beale says this, six repeated three times indicates the completeness of sinful incompetence found in the beast. The beast epitomizes imperfection while appearing to achieve divine perfection. So John is telling us that understanding this, we are opposed to this wicked and deadly triad of Satan with the tyrants and the false prophets who serve him. But this, he says, calls for the wisdom of Christ's followers. Amazing chapter, huh? And it's so pertinent for us today, you guys. So don't believe all you read or hear about some future beasts. The beasts are active there right now, roaming. They've been working since, since the church was birthed. But let's, let's have wisdom as to what we're dealing with. Father, thank you. We pray for this morning that your presence would fill this room, Spirit of God. We pray for hearts that will come in in all different places that you would meet with us. We pray the worship would honor you. We pray the word of God would strengthen your church. We pray that anyone who comes in who may not know you would be touched to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that we would love one another with sincerity today and welcome one another in the faith and that the church would be built up. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Read chapter 14.